Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to this special episode of Add Passion and Stir, focused on the second food justice conversation that we just co-hosted with Food and Society at the Aspen Institute. We wanted to make sure that before 2020 came to an end, which can't be soon enough, we offered a deeper dialogue about some of the tragically unnecessary suffering that Americans are experiencing due to hunger, homelessness, and poverty, all suffering that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. As we head into 2021, COVID caseloads are extraordinarily high, and hunger is at unprecedented and unacceptable levels. With regard to hunger, at least, you might find yourself asking, how does this make sense in a country with no shortage of food and no shortage of food assistance programs? This conversation explores some of the historic reasons for it, including the role of structural racism and inequity. And specific recommendations for addressing it are brought forth by our guests, Congresswoman Shelley Pengry from Maine, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards from Maryland, and former Secretary of Education John King. Hunger in America reflects a terrible failure of political will. It's among our most solvable problems, but only if your voices and all of our voices are heard. That's the precursor for meaningful political change. How can we be a great nation that builds, creates, invents, cures, grows, and advances if we can't even feed our own citizens, neighbors, and especially our children? I hope this special food justice episode of Add Passion and Stir will provoke the kinds of questions and answers that we all need to talk about. Thanks for joining in to listen, and special thanks to Elliot Gaskin and Kellyn Zubrick and their colleagues here at Share Strength who conceived and helped to organize these virtual food justice convenings. Thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Good afternoon and welcome to Hunger is a Racial Equity Issue, Why That Matters and What We Can Do About It. I'm Corby Kummer, Executive Director of Food and Society at the Aspen Institute. A food justice lens examines the roots of hunger and the way it intersects with race and class, as well as with health, educational and environmental inequality. That's the approach we take at both Share Our Strength and Food and Society. Uh, no Kid Hungry's work every day is the embodiment of that. Uh, as you'll be hearing from my wonderful colleague, Elliot Gaskins after today's conversation. And Food and Society at the Aspen Institute is finding new ways to bring equity to research in the food as medicine movement and doing pioneering work in food service and restaurant worker safety during COVID, including releasing this week a new diner code of conduct aimed at keeping both servers and diners safe. We've been lucky to pilot together our conversations on food justice. Today, we have an incredibly exciting group. Before I introduce our moderator, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, I'll ask all of you to ask questions in chat throughout our conversation. Don't hesitate, don't wait. We have operators standing by who'll be collecting your questions throughout today's conversation. Elliot Gaskins will be providing an email where we'll welcome with open arms in the coming weeks, your comments and suggestions on our future conversations, which excitingly resume early in the new year. It's my honor to welcome and introduce Congresswoman Shelley Pingree who represents the great state of Maine, but I think of her as representing all our country. Her tireless commitment to addressing hunger, evidenced by her, evidenced by her leadership in the House Food Recovery Caucus. 
her efforts to prioritize food security from the earliest days of the COVID-19 response, and her fierce defense of SNAP as our nation's largest and most effective line of defense against hunger are constant inspirations to all of us who try to follow in her footsteps. Uh, we're also inspired by her efforts to call attention to how systemic racism has, as Congresswoman Pingree wrote earlier this year, uh, perpetuated longstanding disparities in education, employment, housing, healthcare, the justice system, environmental issues, and more. We couldn't be more fortunate to have Congresswoman Pingree moderate our conversation with Congresswoman Donna Edwards and Secretary John King. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Well, Corby, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to moderate this wonderful panel. I'm very excited about this conversation. And thank you to everybody who is um, tuning in to be a part of this really important conversation. In the wealthiest country in the world, we should never have to have conversations about hunger. Yet it is critically important, and this pandemic has showed us uh, the real flaws in our safety net and the importance of moving forward on changing some of those things. Thank you, Corby, for organizing this, to everybody at the Aspen Institute to share our strength. Uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, but let's bring on our panel and get right down to the conversation. Donna Edwards has served five terms in the United States House of Representatives, becoming the first African-American woman to represent Maryland. Congresswoman Edwards was co-chair of the House Democrats Steering and Policy Committee and co-chair of the Bipartisan Women's Caucus. She is a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and NBC, MSNBC political contributor. She earned her JD from the University of New Hampshire School of Law and her BA from Wake Forest University. She is the mother of one adult friend. I was privileged to serve with Donna while uh, she was there and she is still a good friend. Uh, Secretary John B. King is the president and CEO of Education Trust, a national nonprofit organization that seeks to identify and close educational opportunity and achievement gaps. Secretary King served as U.S. Secretary of Education in the Obama administration. Prior to that role, he carried out the duties of Deputy Secretary, overseeing policies and programs related to P-12 education, English learners, overseeing policies, uh, special education, innovation, and agency operations. King joined the department following his post as the New York State Education Commissioner, and he began his career as a high school social studies teacher and middle school principal, what could qualify you more to be Secretary of Education. And I just want you to know it's been a very long four years without you. Uh, we have missed you, and thank you so much uh, to both of you for your public service. So let's just jump right in here. Um, I don't think we could have this conversation without addressing the COVID-19 pandemic and the disparate impact that both the virus itself and the resulting recession is having on communities of color. So Donna, could you start with uh, talking a little bit about how this country is facing two pandemics, COVID-19 and systemic racism, and kind of set the stage for us a bit about how these factors are intertwined uh, when we talk about hunger and food insecurity? Well, we already know that um, huge disparities exist in the healthcare uh, system, in education, uh, throughout the economy. And I think that COVID-19 has really laid bare um, what these challenges are for so many Americans. Um, among African-Americans, the rate of, of hunger, hungry families and hungry children um, has always been um, pretty consistently two to two and a half times greater 
than it is for our white families and white children. Um, we also know that that same thing is, those same factors are true among Latinos. And if you look at the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, we see those exact same disparities replicated um, and affecting so many families. And so it's actually not a surprise to me that um, the same disparities that you see in healthcare uh, and COVID-19, um, you see equal factors when it comes to children and families going hungry. John, do you wanna add anything to this sort of setting the stage? Sure, I just note that we know from the Census Bureau data this summer that 40% of Black and Latino families were struggling to put food on the table for their kids. And so this, this COVID-19 pandemic has had a disparate health impact, economic impact, educational impact, and um, food insecurity impact on particularly Black and Latino kids that will have a negative effect on their academic standing, not just this year, but going forward. And we have to be very worried about that. I know you're working hard on this, Congresswoman, but we need Congress to act to try to address uh, these gaps. Another thing I'd note is that, you know, to Congresswoman Edwards' point, that the, the systemic racism operates to create all of these structural barriers. Something like 8% of African Americans live in a census tract where there's a grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are significant percentages something like a quarter of African-Americans don't have a car, right? So folks aren't able to get to, um, to a grocery store. So there's both an obstacle to uh, healthy food as well as these issues of food insecurity. And, and that's by design. I mean, this is the system that we've created over 400 years. And so if we want something different, we have to work to actively dismantle those systems. It's true. I mean, this has been our system for the many years of our country and, and before, um, and it feels like a pandemic, uh, particularly as long as we've been at this, just really shows us the importance of, of changing this system, making fundamental changes to the way we go about doing things and um, makes it much more difficult for us to walk away from these problems, you know, when, you, when you're looking them in the eye every day. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about federal policy and programs. Of course, one of my favorite topics and something um, we all have lived every day. We know that a lot of these safety net programs have been aimed to limit black mothers and families from even accessing the system. This inequality continues to persist today. And this is one of the most important things we have to change as we're going forward and looking at what to do differently. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, about just sort of the, the actual issues that we have to change in these programs to make sure that they're not barriers to access, but they're actually welcoming people to participate? I'll start on this. I mean, I think, I think, first of all, we have to understand what families really need in order not to be secure. And so when you have a, a policy that actually minimizes the amounts that families can receive, um, that categorizes what they can spend um, their allotments on, and then restricts them in terms of where it is that they can um, they can get their, um, you know, their necessities, then you create, you've already started out creating a system that is going to have a disproportionate negative impact on families who don't access um, their, their food needs in that kind of way that 
um, in the within the barriers that are are created. I also think if you look at um, at federal programs, they're really designed to they're more designed to keep people from accessing them than they are to uh, have people experience not being hungry. Uh, I know that when I was a a young mom, a single mom out of a bad marriage, um, I went to work every single day, but it, because I was working every day, I also didn't qualify for some of those nutrition programs. And so what did I do? At the end of every week, I'd see how many groceries I had, and then I would go to a food pantry to supplement what I wasn't able to get with my own paycheck in a grocery store. Well, I mean, that seems like a lot of hurdles to jump through if you're a mom and you want to feed your child who's hungry. You know, we should be working a lot harder to make it easier for folks to access benefits. You know, one hopeful note, um, the Congress earlier this year um, extended the pandemic EBT program, which allowed families to use an ATM-like card to get the food benefit that otherwise would have come from the free and reduced price lunch program if kids were in school. Given how many schools are online or hybrid, that pandemic EBT just made it easier for folks to go to a grocery store or farmer's market and get food. That's the kind of work government should be doing. I know there is a current discussion about increasing the SNAP benefit. Uh, that's an important step to, to make sure that people have what they need in, in this challenging time. But uh, I worry that um, this sort of minimization of access to benefits is really just another manifestation of the systemic racism that has always been with us. And um, there are certainly elected officials, unfortunately, who try to demonize uh, those who utilize public benefits. Uh, and that's sort of a trope of American politics that, that, we, that we need to reject and move past. Yeah, I certainly hope that, um, you know, in my most, uh positive of outlooks about what could be the silver lining in such a horrible tragedy is that it has forced us to look at some of these fundamental problems about how we how we feed our country, what our safety net looks like. And certainly um, getting Congress to talk about this, you know, basic fundamental issue of why do we make it so hard? Um, many people know that the uh, the nutrition section of the, the um, agricultural appropriations bill every year is about 85% of the funding, the farm bill, it's about 85%. So the USDA is really in many more ways a department of food and nutrition than it is just working with our farmers in our country. Um, yet we have the biggest fights over the smallest things around that every time we do a farm bill or an appropriations bill. And it is always these barriers, um, whether it's, you know, any kind of hoop we can not we, but you know, the people can imagine to put onto this as a way to stop um, people from accessing it. And that's where we have to get back to this fundamental question that you both mentioned is, um, you know, why are we trying to keep people from accessing these things that would fundamentally make their lives better, allow children to, you know, be more successful in school, better brain development for young children, and just, and even health outcomes now in the COVID, we know that so much of it is based on what you eat. Do you have access to healthy food? What's your general sort of condition going into it. Another important part that um, it, it would be interesting for you to talk about, which is you know somewhat similar, but, but just this stigma, the whole idea of the stigma of um, even trying to access these programs. I heard a statistic the other day that 40% of the people coming to food banks today 
and you know they've had hugely increased participation, long lines everywhere, um, over 40%. It's their first visit. And also, most of those people have no idea about the SNAP benefit system, about the EBT card system that you mentioned about school lunch. So these are people who haven't had a lot of experience in this, never thought they would be in this place, but also don't, don't even know how to access the, uh, these other programs. But for the most part, there's been traditionally just this stigma of even anyone knowing. So talk about that and why that's such a big barrier. Well, you know, Shelley, I mean, I can just speak from my, my personal experience. I went through such hoops to avoid having people see me go to a food pantry. I would come home from my job, take off my suit that I had to wear to work, put on jeans and a t-shirt and a, and a baseball cap, and go around to actually different food banks um, in order to avoid just being seen. Maybe I thought I was going to be seen by a neighbor or a friend or whatever. It didn't matter. Um, and I think that that's because the system suggests that there's something wrong with trying to figure out how to feed yourself and your family, um, that there is something negative about doing all that you can to access food. Look at what we do in, sco in schools where we still have so many school systems where the nutrition programs in schools are not universal. And so that means that a child has to stand up and identify him or herself as poor or low income in order to receive a lunch or a breakfast. People, uh, they're afraid. Uh, I've had middle school students tell me and high school students who refuse to even access those programs because they don't want their um, friends and peers to know that they're accessing um, the nutrition programs. This is really insane. We should make these systems universal. Um, not And no kid in school, whether they're a child of means or not, should go hungry through the day. That should just be our accepted way of doing business, and it just isn't. Yeah, I would just add to that, you know, another problem we have in schools is this phenomenon of lunch shaming, right? Yeah. Kids who have, um, who are, let's say, on uh, reduced price meals who may owe money because their family is experiencing financial challenges. They're embarrassed, they're uh, publicly embarrassed for not uh, having paid for their meals. They are uh, denied food in some cases. Now we have some states that have changed their laws to try to prevent lunch shaming. Uh, but but the, the shame in it is the shame that we allow that to happen in our schools and communities. Another thing I'd observe is that, you know, I think since the beginning of COVID, since March, the 600 wealthiest billionaires in the country are, uh, I think some $900 billion more wealthy. Um, so there's a way in which our economy and our politics are organized so that folks divide uh, low-income folks and, and working-class and middle-class folks try to use racism, race baiting, anti-immigrant sentiment around public benefits to try to pit people against each other. Meanwhile, uh, the wealthiest folks are able to extract tremendous resources from the economy without, to my mind, giving back their fair share. Um, and so the, we've really got to figure out how do we overcome those politics and help people understand that all of us may need a safety net 
in a time in our lives. And we want to be the kind of society, the kind of community that supports folks when they're struggling. There shouldn't be shame in that. Mm -hmm. We should see that as a, a testament to our strength as a country that we're able to lift each other up. Well, Shelley, you reminded me um, in search of silver, silver linings, uh, something that John just said, which is that I do think in this environment where so many people have to access um, our nutrition programs, our food pantries, our feeding uh, programs who never had to access it before, we actually now have an entire new group of people who can become advocates um, for families who are families in need because they've been in need. And I think that we should, in the advocacy community, really try um, to use that to our advantage in the future post-pandemic so that we can create an entire new um, ethos around what it means to be in need and have to access these programs. They should be available to anyone if they are experiencing any kind of need. And we have the ability right now to create that kind of advocacy ethos that we may not have had before. So Shelley, that's my silver lining for you. you no, know, I agree. And I think that um, uh, if we don't capture these opportunities and how we move forward on thinking policy through um, and this empathy that we have with far more people than ever thought they would be in this position before, um, we're, we're going to miss a huge opportunity and, and um, find ourselves in, in much worse trouble. And, and John, you made a really good point as well. Um, this whole system that we have where we know the gap between the wealthy and poor uh, or even wealthy and middle class has just grown at a level that we've never seen before. And so we have such huge disparities. And in a sense, we've set up this system where if you have a lot of money, then perhaps you donate some of it. You have, you know, you have some sympathy and empathy, and you say, "Well, of course, I want to help the hungry. It's Christmas, you know. Let me do my share," um, which is minuscule compared to what you know what is really needed. And it's kind of the food bank model that we have. And as as grateful as we all are for the incredible food bank system, the volunteers, the you know, the all the things that have to happen to make that work. Um, how did we develop this system which says we're going to make it almost impossible for you to um, for you to access this minuscule safety net that just keeps your family whole and it is actually fundamental to life you know and um, also you know critically important to having a, a big healthy nation and um, we said we'll let the food banks do it and I've you know I've been through many congressional debates when we're talking about you know, the importance of the SNAP benefit system and people say, well, there's food banks in my community. And, and now, you know, another thing we've learned is we have stretched the food bank system to such an extent they, they can't provide, they don't have the volunteers, they don't have the funding, um, you know, even through donations. But it is an interesting, we've, you know, we've created this system in our country where we sort of say, well, it's, it's fine if you're wealthy and you give, yet we don't understand that that will never fill this need. Um, let's just sort of move forward on this a little bit um, and talk about sort of what kind of food we eat. I mean, race and income are both highly correlated, correlated with healthy food access. So what would a transformed food system to make healthy food more available, accessible, and affordable for people of color and low-income people look like? And how do we get there? And I'm really talking about um, 
this transformation we've made, even in the last decade or two, of, of thinking about food access as just being calories. Can we get you enough calories? And then starting to understand, particularly as we know so much more about the health outcomes of what you eat, the relationship to what you eat, um, that uh, there are huge you know, health disparities because of people's inability to access fresh and healthy food. So again, we have this safety net system that allows you to barely get by, but we don't make it very easily accessible to get to healthy food. So well, can we talk a little bit about that and the consequences of where we are? Well, I do think that when you look at, uh, we're talking about um, racial equity and disparities. And I think that you can't have that conversation without you know, looking historically at how it is that we got here. I mean, if you keep it, if you go back 400 years and look at, um, at black enslavement, the entire process for people figuring out how to feed themselves and their families was unhealthy from the beginning. It was scraps driven. It was the, you know, the worst of the food, um, food supply that, um, that fed enslaved people. And many of those same um, ways of preparing meals and, you know, what goes into food preparation have got, come down through generations. I know in my family, I'm a generation away from using pork to season greens, um, things like that. And so I think it's important for us to understand where, how we've gotten, where we've come through historically, but also look at ways that we can reshape how it is that we um, engage in our food supply and how we prepare our, our meals. You know, if you want to access um, fresh fruits and vegetables, say from a farmer's market, because your EBT card allows you to do that. Well, in my community, which is a major metropolitan area, there are so many food deserts that even if you wanted to get fresh fruits and fruits and vegetables, you can't find a farmer's market. You can't find a grocery store that has um, fresh fruits and vegetables that are not out of date and and, and rotting. And so all of those things, those factors also contribute to why it is that you have African-Americans with, with higher rates of diabetes and high blood pressure and, you know, all of the comorbidities that are being exacerbated by, uh, by COVID, but are a product of the kind of food system that we have. Look, we, we could center healthy eating and healthy nutrition in our public policy, we choose not to, right? So we could say, well, we're going to subsidize and incentivize uh, local farmers rather than these big commercial farms. We're gonna support local farmers, including urban farmers uh, who can produce local food that is immediately accessible so that we can create those farmers markets that Congresswoman Edwards was describing. We could create tax incentives for locating grocery stores in high needs communities. We could uh, have community gardens in our schools and in our public housing developments where we cultivate locally grown foods. We could have kitchens in our schools where we prepare locally grown healthy food, where we expose kids to healthy ingredients in their, in their school breakfast and their school lunch. We could talk about nutrition and healthy eating in our classrooms and our science curriculum. 
but we choose not to. We choose to focus on, uh, as you said, Congressman Pinker, just on the minimum threshold of calorie provision. Um, and we pay the price. I mean, the, the irony is uh, we think that that's somehow saving us money, but actually, if you look at the health consequences, it's costing us money. So we really need to reorient how we think about food systems in our country. Oh, no, go ahead. Kind of, oh, I'm sorry, Shelley. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, if you think about, you know, if an average um, benefit, um, nutrition benefit is like $129 a, a week. Well, that average benefit if you were a parent, if you're a per person, if you're a family of four and you're going out to spend that, you could run through that and mostly you'd get a whole bunch of processed foods, right? So the benefit, the minimum benefit itself doesn't lend itself to spending on things that are of nutritional value and that could actually uh, improve our health outcomes and the quality of nutrition that we're consuming. Yeah, and just to reinforce what you both said, um, I mean, I'm lucky enough to serve on the Agriculture Committee and Agriculture Appropriations, so I've focused um, much of my time in Congress around these very issues from the Farm Bill, how we subsidize farmers, as you said, much of the Farm Bill um, subsidies go to the big commercial crops, corn and cotton and wheat, and we actually literally call fruits and vegetables specialty crops in the Farm Bill. So if you think about that, what should take up most of your plates, we're still talking about is specialty crops, and we do uh, very little in a sense. It's, it's very disproportionate, um, the, the small amount we give to farmers who do that, or as you mentioned, urban you know, agriculture or all the things that could really expand people's access through the farm bill. Then on the nutrition side, um, we have, uh, Donna mentioned it, we have um, expanded slightly to include a program that some people call the double box, and that's if you have a EBT card and you take it to a farmer's market or a grocery store that has fresh produce, um, you may access double the amount of fresh food. We're starting a pilot program. We actually have a food is medicine caucus and it's a bipartisan caucus. We're starting a pilot program um, called produce prescriptions, which is basically if you go to your physician and they say, wow, your, your family just needs to eat more fruits and vegetables. And you say, hey, can't afford it. You can literally get you know, assistance. And there's a lot of um, nonprofits who have really moved into this field. And now there's increasing research being done, which is great. Um, insurance companies are starting to say, maybe there's a benefit to this. As, uh, as one of you mentioned, um, you know, we're talking in the billions and billions of dollars of the cost of diabetes, heart disease. It's over a trillion dollars a year now, the cost of obesity, which is very much related to what kind of food you're able to access. So. You know, we, we, we have dipped our toe into these waters, I think, as policymakers, um, yet almost everything is a limited scope, a pilot project, a let's try this out. And I'm hopeful that as we see the private sector saying, you know, there are such huge economic benefits to be yielded here. We will actually, you know, as Congress become humanitarians and decent citizens and say, you know, everybody should have access to healthy food and the good outcomes that come with it. So it's well within our power. Um, but one of the challenges that we have, even, even some of these things that we're doing in Congress that are better, and um, John, you mentioned the pandemic EBT program, which is really a great way to help uh, families access more healthy food when kids are schooling remotely. I mean, for a lot of kids, whether it's school breakfast, lunch, or dinner, um, or after school snacks, that's been a great way to get food into um, your system. 
But if you're not going to school, how, how do we make that work? So pandemic EBT has said that those families can have more money on their EBT cards, basically. But one of the problems is we do that at a congressional level, but states have a fair amount of latitude in this. So what do we do now, or how do we help people to understand that um, there are states that aren't taking advantage of this at all, or are you know are not doing it in a way that's helpful to people? It's it's been heartbreaking actually to see states not take full advantage or create additional barriers within the program, making it harder for people, creating application processes and unnecessary hurdles for folks that particularly dissuade uh, immigrant communities and undocumented families from participating. So, you know, I think we have to hold up the examples like Michigan, where uh, they did an excellent job on management of pandemic EBT. And, you know, I would love to see us make the EBT structure our permanent structure for summer. Um, we know there's you know, greatly reduced participation in the school meals program in the summer. And I, be, be a hope that states will then build a system that is enduring around EBT and not see this as, as just something they're doing in the midst of the crisis, but actually a permanent system so that families can get these cards and keep their children fed over the summer. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, I remember when I introduced the after-school suppers program for Maryland. Uh, Maryland, even though it's a wealthy state, had you know, something like um, a third of the students um, were students of low income who qualified for nutrition programs. And we weren't taking advantage of it. And even to this day, not every school system in our state, even when schools are fully operational, is actually taking advantage of that. And so what does that mean? It means that children um, eat, maybe they have breakfast and lunch at school, they go home, they don't have dinner, they are um, tired, they're hungry, they show up the next morning and you can't get them settled down because they haven't eaten the night before. And then we wonder why they haven't done their homework. Um, you know, that is such a ridiculous question in a country where we actually have the capacity um, to make sure that our young people are, are eating healthy and that they get food. But we've created these barriers, that, John, as you said, in place that actually keep people from, um, from accessing them. I mean, right now in this pandemic, you shouldn't have to go through another application process because you've already done that application process because you ask, the students access the food when they're in school. And so, you know, I think at a congressional level, it's really important to think through how these programs are administered by the state and trying to at least put some structures in place that then don't encourage states to create more barriers to people who may just beg out of that just because they didn't get the paperwork done and so their children go hungry. Yeah, and we have so many antiquated systems, um, you know, uh, how you, do you have access to a computer to apply for a program? Or there's just so much that we do to make it difficult for people. Um, Donna, you wanna talk a little bit about, um, you know, one other issue is that often the, the safety net programs are, are inter, you know, they're intertwined and housing can be such a big barrier. A lot, um, the SNAP benefit program was actually originally designed around a menu that's meant to be cooked at home. There are lots of restrictions around accessing 
cooked food or prepared food. Um, there's a few little variances in certain states, but just talk to us a little bit about, you have to look at this as a whole picture of what challenges people are going through. Well, you really do. I mean, think about all the families, one who live in multi-generational households or who live in shared households where they may not actually share um, the, the kitchen that even though they may rent a room in a household, they may ha not have access to the refrigerator um, so that they can store uh, foods at safe temperatures or to the stove so that they can, can cook them. And then add on top of that, um, people who, who dip in and out of poverty, they are in poverty and they dip in and out of housing, they dip in and out of accessing nutrition programs. Nutrition and housing are so deeply, um, deeply connected and yet they live in, in terms of delivering a safety net, they live in completely different regulatory worlds. And yet the one person still has to access all of those systems. Again, if you are have low income and don't have access to the ability to even um, apply for uh, apply in a meaningful way for programs for housing and for um, for nutrition, you've actually cut yourself out of a substantial thing that actually could bring you out of po out of poverty. So um, I just think that we have to recognize that we have one person accessing multiple systems. And so to me, the better reflection of policy would be to create one system for that one person so that they can access uh, what they need to be able to sustain themselves and their families. Yeah, John, one thing we haven't talked much about um, is uh, uh, food insecurity in higher education. You know, um, I know here in Maine, uh, the University of Maine system has food pantries, I think, at, on every campus. And um, today's student is a non-traditional student in many campuses in this country, and college and higher education has gotten even more complicated during the pandemic. But we often, again, have, we operate under this myth that kids in college, their parents are paying the bills, you know, what's the big deal? Or uh, the other one that I really hate is that people say like, yeah, well, when I was in college, I lived on noodles the whole time, not really understanding that, um, you know, these, these are real people. And it doesn't mean you're just buying cheap noodles because you want to get concert tickets on the weekends. It may be you're just barely surviving. So can you talk a little bit about um, how that looks today? Sure. Well, you know, I think about the Hope Center at, at Temple, which has studied food insecurity on campuses and found that in public community colleges, you often have 40% or more of the students who are food insecure. And this is really a product of, again, choices we've made as you, know, as you said in the framing, wealthiest country in the world, we've decided to make college quite unaffordable for folks. You know, in 1980, Pell Grants accounted for about 80% of the cost of a public four-year college. Today, Pell Grants account for about 28%. So the federal role is not what it once was. States over the last few decades have significantly disinvested in public higher ed, particularly at the community college level. So we've passed all of that on to students. And the cost of college is not just about tuition. It's also food and housing and childcare. You know, 20% of our college students are parents. 
So folks are juggling all of these costs. We haven't done what we could as a country to invest in them uh, and really to invest in our future by investing in higher education. And so we end up with students who are food insecure and then struggling to pay attention in class, struggling to, you know, you know I, think about how hard it is to be focused when you are desperately hungry or how much of your mental energy if you're a parent is going into thinking about how am I going to get food for my kids rather than being able to focus on your studies. So this, this is a huge challenge. Now there are some things that we could do. The food pantries that universities have set up, that's certainly helpful. But as you pointed out, earlier, this is a systemic problem that requires a public policy solution. We could have a free and reduced price lunch program for higher ed, right? The 18 year old who got free and reduced price lunch and got lunch and breakfast at school in June, now they're in college in September. Don't they still need that support for their academic well-being? We could, as the president-elect has proposed, double Pell Grants. That would help immensely uh, to address this. Um, States also have the option to designate career programs on their campuses as qualifying for the work and training requirements of SNAP. So states can on their own actually expand SNAP eligibility for higher ed students. They ought to do that. Uh, New Jersey has done that. New York has done that. We need, we need every state really to take that step. Well, um, let's take a few questions from the audience. I think there have been several. So let me see if I can get a couple more in. We have about 15 minutes left of this wonderful conversation. Um, so let me see if I can say this, uh, frame this the right way. Um, one question is around this whole conversation about um, food and racial equity. And, and how do we, there are many people who can't even see the systemic racism in our country and certainly a lot of policymakers. And how, how do we engage people who can't see this, don't understand it, maybe even fundamentally believe it's not accurate um, in this conversation about these systemic issues? It's sort of a big question, but just, you know, what, what are your thoughts about in, how do we move people into this conversation? If we need a sort of a broader coalition and a better understanding in our country to make fundamental change. It's not an easy question, I know. It's, it is such a big question. I mean, I, I, mean, I can remember um, when I was in Congress, um, Shelley, having conversations with colleagues who really principally viewed um, the, the problem of hunger as a strictly urban Black problem that was somehow just unique to those uh, communities. And I think that we have to, I mean, we have a lot of education to do of lawmakers to help them understand both the scope of the problem, but also the roots of the problem. And I don't think we've done a good job of that. I mean, you know, when you, you know, if you really think broadly about, um, about um, hunger, I mean, hunger is a deeply urban problem, but it is a significantly rural problem. And yet we never really have that conversation about the broader context of the, of, of the problem of, of hunger, of hungry people. Um, and I think that, you know, the questions that we, the, that we talked about earlier around 
the health consequences and what that is what that is causing in our communities when you have African Americans who are dying of you know these huge comorbidities even both with COVID and without and that many of those challenges center around nutrition well that's a cost to all of us it isn't just a cost to black families who are losing their loved ones but it's a cost to us as a society when we lose workers when we um uh, when we're just paying the trillion dollars that you uh, noted in the healthcare system uh but I think that when too many members of Congress think that it's somebody else's problem, then it's easy to not focus on what some of the root causes of hunger are. And the thing I would add, you know, these racial disparities, as Congresswoman Edwards said earlier, are grounded in our history as a country. I, I, you know, there's a way in which we, we need to do a much better job. You know, I feel this way as a social studies teacher, a much better job helping folks understand the link between our history around slavery and Jim Crow and the racial wealth gap and the income uh, gaps we see based on race uh, and the ways in which systemic racism operates to systematically disadvantage folks of color. I do think we have this opportunity because of the conversations this spring around issues of racial justice, where folks are there, there's a growing awareness um, of the challenges that systemic racism presents in our society. And I, I think we have to move from uh, performative wokeness to policy wokeness. Mm -hmm. We have to help people see that, uh, you know, I appreciate the Black Lives Matter sign in your yard, but then I need to know, are you also voting for affordable housing in the community? Are you also voting for policies that make it easier for families to get the food they need? Are you voting for uh, equitable school funding? Like, how are you transitioning from uh, the kind of rhetoric of racial justice to actual substantive policy? Yeah, and that's a really good point. I think that whole idea of, um, again, sort of capturing this moment of a conversation opening in our country and knowing that you know, people of all races and backgrounds are showing up in the streets to be part of their peaceful protests but um, then for many people, it's how do you take it the next step? I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate who have been a member of Congress. And, um, you know, I come from the whitest state in the nation uh, with a lot of rural poverty and a lot of rural issues. But um, I've had the opportunity to be in so many of these conversations and work on so many of these policies that have given me a chance to understand more. But I also understand, you know, on top of everything else, what a privilege that is, because it's hard to translate sort of the big picture. And I think your, um, you know, your mention of history. I mean, I've learned more history in Congress than I did in high school, college, and all my adult years before then, um, because it's a different conversation now. But it, understanding our history is something that very few of us get an opportunity to do um, in the standard education system that we've had. Okay, let me get in a couple more questions. Um, this is very specific about nutritional food, and um, John, you may have some thoughts about this, but in a lot of districts with high minority schools, there are big food companies that come in and, and have ways to push uh, low nutrition foods. And I don't know what the state of that is today, but it's, it's, a, it's a question about how we build our food habits and, and who has access to educating and feeding our children. Well, as you know, you know, this was a priority for Mrs. Obama and, and mm -hmm. we did some work in the Obama administration to try to raise the standards around food quality and, and 
a priority for the Trump administration was to undo those efforts to, to try to improve uh, the quality of meals. I think this is a place where we need real organizing. Um, I, you know, I, I'd love to see more student organizing around this. I know this has happened at the higher ed level where students have organized to insist on healthier food from their campuses, to insist on more locally grown food uh, from their campuses. You know, this is a place where we've got to think about how do we build a movement of students and parents who are showing up at school board meetings and saying this matters to us. Um, and you know, on the on the on the policy side, uh, we, you know, Congresswoman Edwards made this point about the SNAP benefit. We've got to think about maybe we need to spend a little more per meal to make sure that the meals are actually healthy. And wouldn't we want that for our own child? So shouldn't we want that for everyone's child? Um, so, you know, there, there's both a, a sort of bottom-up pressure effort that's needed here, as well as I think some policy leadership. Let me see if I can get in a couple more questions. So one is, um, you know, for those of us who are excited and enthusiastic about January 20th, we're about to have a new administration. We'll have a new Secretary of Agriculture, and we have a new administration that's gonna come in uh, with the um, promise of a whole new perspective. So what, what do we all need to do and expect of the new administration to hold them accountable? A, um, to look at some of the very important structural issues and policy changes we've talked about, to understand that they have to do more than just go back to where we were four years ago, that this is a moment to take what we know and move forward ahead. And I'm gonna combine it with another question, which is also about how um, do all those organizations that care deeply about hunger um, organize and try to influence this important thing and what is their role? So to the extent you can throw all those things together and have some wonderful answers. Well, I mean, look, I think that um, we need to put the question to the new administration to be what do families need? Not what, not what do policymakers need? Um, you know, what does the administration need? What do families need in order to sustain themselves? Not just to sustain, but to thrive. What do families need to thrive? And I think when we ask that question, then it becomes about a max and not a minimum. You know, a, 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 not a minimum in terms of um, how many fruits and vegetables do you need? Well, if you're only giving a benefit that allows you to get fruits and vegetables for two days, but not for seven days, maybe that's what families need. Um, so I would like to reframe the question so that it comes from, so that our demands come from a perspective of families and not from the perspective of what, you know, sort of what the states or the Congress need to produce. That's a big demand, I think. And I think unless the hunger advocacy community engages families in being their advocates for that, I think it's really hard to change the conversation. I, I agree with that completely. I, two observations, you know, the, the president-elect has talked about uh, addressing systemic racism, advancing racial justice as a overarching priority for the administration. And I, I think, as advocates, certainly I feel this way as a, as a civil rights advocate, we have, to, we have to demand that the administration of every level um, is true to that across agencies. And 
you know, how black farmers are treated uh, will be an important measure of that. Um, how uh, these programs are implemented to make sure that we get the benefits to those who are most vulnerable. I think about particularly undocumented families who struggled so much during this COVID period because they haven't had access to many federal benefits outside of pandemic EBT. Um, you know, that will be a measure of their, of their commitment. Um, I think this issue of voice that Congresswoman Edwards is raising is exactly right. Will we see, and you know, we're paying a lot of attention to the diversity of the cabinet, obviously, that's something I care about and believe in, but also what's the diversity of the team? Who, what voices are uh, at the table thinking through these questions in the administration? And then I think about the work to create that outside pressure you know, they're, they're going to need that pressure to move things through Congress. They're going to need that pressure on governors and state legislatures. And so the work that Cheryl Strength is doing, that the Food and Society program is doing to help educate voters, uh, teachers, and district administrators who need to better understand how these systems work, uh, legislators. Um, that education work, I think, is, is part of the movement building we need so that these questions are being constantly asked. Yeah, I mean, we're always really good at putting so many, uh, you know, when we pass a bad time, we put those issues in a rearview mirror. And I think this is a really important moment to not do that, you know, to not lose the moment that we have to um, just be better stewards of what we want for the future. and. You know, my fear is this has been such a 2020 has been such a bad year that all of us want to put it in the rearview mirror, but we really can't afford to do that when it comes to hunger. Mm -hmm. No, it's a really good point. And you you look at all the history of what happened in the in the last, you know, the flu epidemic and the fact that we didn't even read history about it because both our country, I think, was ashamed, but also just wanted to move beyond. And Certainly, we all understand that, but you know, it's come up many times in this conversation. This is a really important learning experience from us. And you know, we, we can't just take the pandemic and say, well, in the future, we're going to have better testing and tracing, or we're going to be sharper at developing vaccines because we've learned so much about the fundamental issues around this. And I would just add that for all those incredible organizations that work so hard to feed people, it's also to help the policymakers to move into this next level of conversation about, you know, this is about food and nutrition, about the health outcomes. How do we keep people from, you know, being in positions where they're more likely to be affected by the viruses? And how do we look at these fundamental issues of systemic racism? Uh, I am getting the time to close. So that is just so sad because there are some wonderful questions. And I'm sorry to all the questioners that we can't get to everyone um, because this is an amazing panel to answer those questions and to add so much uh, insight into what we need to do. But uh, I wanna thank uh, Share Our Strength and the Espen Institute for putting us all together today and giving us this privilege of, of having this conversation and to everybody who's um, paid attention. I know you're all here because you care about these issues and believe me, we need everybody on the team trying to move forward and, and working on these issues. And thank you again to Congresswoman Edwards and Secretary King for your, your public service, your great knowledge of these things and for sharing that knowledge with us today. It's, it's really been a pleasure for me to spend the time with you. So thank you so much. Um, now we're going to move um, 
just to the very final moment, we're going to have Elliot Gaskins, who's the Managing Director of Development at Share Our Strength. And I'll just thank you again, Elliot. I really appreciate the wonderful work this organization does and uh, for you helping to bring us together today. So I will turn it over to you to close. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Congresswoman Pingree, Congresswoman Donna Edwards, and Secretary John King for your wonderful participation today and for your commitment to social justice. Today is a great example of what we want this series to be, compelling and thoughtful discussions that challenge and inspire us. In 2021, we're going to bring you more of these rich conversations, including topics on a connection between hunger and health, some powerful testimonies of hunger, the impact of structural racism on the food system, and so much more. We also welcome the opportunity to hear from all of you. Please email us at foodjusticeatstrength.org to share any feedback and ideas. Foodjusticeatstrength.org. Finally, as we head into the holiday season, I challenge myself and all of you to remember the children and families who are struggling right now. But let's change the narrative on how we think about them. Think of them not as individuals who need help because we've all needed help in one form or another. And we're all connected. We're all connected by the threads of history and a shared humanity. But let's think of them as resilient, determined and extraordinary individuals that they are. Let's not only think of them, but recommit ourselves to give more than we think we can give. That extra push, extra hand, belief that we can do more than we think is what makes the difference in life. If we do that, we'll emerge from this tumultuous times in a far better place than we were before. Thanks again for your participation and for joining us today. And we wish everyone a safe and happy holiday.